Why'd you two come here to ask you about Mr. Corbin? Let me understand this. You two came here to question me? Well, your your attitudes, Mr. Endicott, your points of view are a matter of record. Some people, well, let us say the people who work for Mr. Colbert might reasonably regard you as the person least likely to mourn his passing. We were just trying to clarify some of the evidence. Was Mr. Colbert ever in this greenhouse, say, last night about midnight? Good, that's me. Yeah. You saw it. I saw it. What are you gonna do about it? I don't know. I'll remember that. There was a time when I could have had you shot. A modern day remake of Matthew Vaughn's lay a kick of Coen Brothers send up with Timothy Chalamet. A citizen came pre equal, a midnight cowboy sequel. Alvin and the chipmunks deserve another squeak. There's so many new ways to revisit sideways, but a graphic novel is how we choose to update. But we still hold fast, you can't change the past on the Ruined Childhoods podcast. Greetings, starfighters, river rowers, and delta dwellers. This is Ruined Childhoods. We're celebrating one culture classic film for each U.S. state, and this week we're in the Magnolia State, nicknamed for the state's official flower, the Magnolia. This state is also called the Hospitality State, which is ironic due to its history of being the second state to secede from the Union in 1862. Certain notable folks who personally seceded from the state are Oprah Winfrey, Elvis Presley, and Lance Bass. What has four eyes but can't see? That's right, we're in Mississippi and we're talking about the 1967 Academy Award winning film In the Heat of the Night. But first, Dan, have you spent much time in Mississippi? You know, John, once upon a time I did spend a lot of time down in Mississippi. I Tell was, me about uh, it. So I and, and those uh, who are are devoted starfighters are maybe already familiar with my tales of the South. They came up as recently as Louisiana mm-hmm. and my tales of being an, an actor in a company, a touring company, at which, by the way, John, uh-huh. just yesterday, I was actually looking up in preparation for our episode. I was looking up. I wish i had saved it but like our itinerary all of our oh. our stops on the tour because we'd spent a lot of time in mississippi i what well, i was quick question what, what was state. what was the group called so on yelp as i discovered it's project educational theater and okay. what was really interesting was because i was looking i was like how do i find this this theater company how do i find some archives and I, I, I found the best I could find was its entry, its page on Yelp, and there were maybe four reviews there from people okay. who all worked for the company. I believe they all worked for the company after I did, okay. and they all had an almost identical experience to mine. Interesting. And oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, difficult, challenging. Uh, Like, definitely the type of work that is only sought after by non union 
actors getting started who just are like, oh, you're going to pay me to do like an hour long show three times a day and travel all over the place. Hell yeah. Sign me up. That was definitely my feeling about it. And the reality of it was you were sometimes a lot of your shows and this is, I don't want to, here's where I don't, if I sound, if my tone is at all condescending or if I sound like a quote unquote coastal elite, I am, I do not intend that. This is, I am telling you my perspective. And this was by the way, in 2001. So the review that I left was basically on Yelp to say, Hey, what everybody else said, plus this is what happened on 9-11. And it was story specific to what, to how our producer who the other reviews established like did not care about the actors or their well-being and how he treated us on september 11th 2001 so i direct you to their yikes to the project educational theater yelp page and the most recent review i assume is mine and check it out if you want to if you want to read more but One of the things that I will cite as a like it was like you're you're carrying around all this heavy equipment and there's only a few people like you're like, look, I don't need read the reviews on Yelp and that that will tell you everything you need to know about the experience. But what I want to spotlight is the opportunities that it gave. And this was why I, I gave a two star as opposed to a one star review the opportunities to see parts of the country that i never would have seen before including towns like and possibly actually sparta mississippi i Uh might have been in that town i was certainly in when i looked at the map and i was like okay where do i really remember being i remember being in natchez which is down along the, the mississippi river uh, okay. Down, uh, down, to- down south, south of the state. Uh, I was definitely in Magnolia and okay. Tupelo, as I have uh, mm-hmm. photos from the birthplace of Elvis Presley. I w- almost positive I was in Jackson and Meridian. So, and, and a lot more. I was in. We had a lot of shows in Mississippi. The tour was based in nearby Kenner, Louisiana, so it it wasn't that far for us, you know, from home base yeah. to go th- throughout Mississippi. So we were a lot of shows in Mississippi and uh, a lot of towns that were like Sparta and definitely looking at Sparta. It, it I know that they did not film it in Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, Sparta, yeah. Illinois, I think. Yes, uh, I don't know if you're planning on getting to that uh, anecdote of that reason why they... I'm sure we'll talk about it. Okay, so anyway, they filmed in Sparta, Illinois, but I felt that there was a lot of, of that small town Mississippi that was captured in it, and also, to an extent, the... Uh, TV series adaptation, which ran from 1988 to, I'm going to say 1994 or five, 
It says 95, so I don't know. Yeah, I think it, it, it yeah, I want to say there was a TV movie that I want to say was kind of, I don't know if that was like its big finale or it happened somewhat towards the end. Oh. And uh, guest starred the late, great Carl Weathers. Oh, no way. Way. So, starred anyway, Carl Weathers. Co- I like guest guest starred. I it did oh, not guest starred. Okay. star him. Right, he was not. They did not call him Mister Tibbs, but they I, that was still uh, How- Howard Rollins who played okay. uh, played, and it's the same character. And we'll we'll get to that. We'll get to that later. We'll talk about that after we'll we talk about that. the movie. Yeah. Yes. So anyway, uh, Mississippi, but definitely like. I definitely drove past a lot of cotton fields, saw yeah. what cotton fields actually look like. And mm-hmm. like, yeah, drove miles and miles of them and just like flat land and like nothing. And of course, this was in 2001, you know, late 2001, early 2002. So I'm sure a lot has changed. But and again, a lot hadn't really changed from 1967 to to 2001. So you definitely saw your share of stars and bars. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So have you been, have have you been, I've never been, I've never been to Mississippi. I, I, you know, I, I've, I've touched foot down in, Florida and then also in Texas but the st- and uh in Georgia of course but like the states in between uh not so much not so, so much uh, like that deep south no uh I'd I'd love to to go through sometime I don't see it happening but you never know it would definitely be an interesting route for a road trip if you were specific about what you wanted to see and if you had certain interests i mean i took actually i i took a bus through mississippi i'm pretty sure i've talked about my bus voyage before from Mm -hmm. uh that i i took starting in macon georgia and then landing me in delray beach florida for a few days and then bringing me up to shreveport louisiana so definitely passed through mississippi and yeah, man, I was all up and down that state. Yeah. Well, cool. I uh, I mean, despite the the subject matter that focuses us in Mississippi, especially on this episode, uh I hear that there are some really beautiful areas and uh I'm sure it would, it would be really lovely to kind of check those out at hey, some man, point in the, my life. The land the land ain't racist. <laughs> Just Yeah. No, yep. I know. I, I mean, it was it, the land predates uh, yep. the racists that were there. The, the land don't care. Uh, yeah. Sorry, it might be a hot take, but yeah. Yeah. So, Dan, uh, this is my first time seeing In the Heat of the Night. Had you seen it before? Yes, once before. Once before? Not too long ago. Also uh-huh. through a streaming service, just one of those... Like, hey, this is a movie that's kind of always been on my list. You know, it's not one that I necessarily ever really thought too much about. But of course, I knew the line, they call me Mr. Tibbs. And so because there is a sequel that is called 
they call me Mr. Tibbs. I uh, I think that my association was like, oh, it's part of that. And the um the the organization, which is the third in the this trilogy, I had, you know, seen that it exists, but I never put the pieces together that those three movies were connected. And I'm sure that I would have seen in the heat of the night at a, at some certain point because of all of mm-hmm. the uh Academy Awards it won. I'm sure that my interest would have brought me there eventually, but it certainly wasn't one that was like, you know, foisted upon me the way that a lot of other movies are. And well, uh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, Best I, I don't picture think 1967, right? Yeah, well, Didn't the 68. Best picture, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and I mean, uh, talking about, you know, films that were, you know, I don't want to say foisted upon us, but films that were definitely more part of our as as brothers our upbringing from that era you had the graduate and the producers and right things like and that right but this was not is, one which is unfortunate because i feel like seeing a movie like this is important because this is a very great representation of the reality that somebody like Virgil Tibbs would have had in, uh, you know, 1960s Mississippi. And, uh, I, I, you know, this, these are actors performing and, uh, and everything, but I, I want to say that, I mean, that's, that's the reason why they didn't film this in Mississippi. Well, right. It would yeah. not have been safe. Well, and, no, uh, Sydney, Sydney Poitier experienced that first hand. Right. Yeah. With uh, on a trip south with with Harry Belafonte, they where they encountered the clan, yeah. And so, this it would not have been safe for them to film in Mississippi, nope. so they uh, they very brilliantly filmed in Sparta, Illinois. They wouldn't have to change any signage on any of the businesses in town that had Sparta on it. Uh, a, a very smart move, especially yeah. since uh, the, the look of the town you know matched the, the look that they wanted to go for. Oh, it de- had I not looked, I would have thought it was definitely filmed on location, if not in Sparta, Mississippi, but definitely in Mississippi or Louisiana or Alabama. Yeah. But I feel like the the reason that they had for not filming on location in Mississippi adds to the, you know, it's almost like it's better than filming in Mississippi for authenticity because this story kind of lives along with it. And it is a story that, you know, lives alongside the themes of the movie. Right. I think that's a a really important, you know, it's not, I mean, I don't even want to say footnote. It's a, you know, it's a little info bit that uh, needs to kind of just be as tacked onto it at all times. It's kind of, it's important context. It, yeah, it's just it's really important context to have. And there's some other context uh, that I, I feel like context comes into play whenever you're watching a film like this, a film about civil rights, about about racism, really more about racism than civil rights. Yeah, this is not to kill a mockingbird. Yeah which no. is more about the legal pro- this is also about the law but it's more about people's attitudes that is about both but uh, we do need to have context when we look at stories like this more so to kill a mockingbird 
Yeah. But when when it comes across and we look back and we're like, well, this was a movie made about with made by white people, even though Sidney yeah. Poitier had a lot of pull and a lot of say in the adaptation. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a movie not you know, not made by Southerner. It's made by Norman Jewison. Yeah. And it's. It doesn't have that quote unquote white savior, which I know has Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird has gotten that reputation. Yeah. And I would not I would not consider our Rod Steiger's Chief Gillespie here to be a quote unquote white savior character. He he's no. an interesting character, actually. Yeah. And uh Steiger I, and, played and I wanna- like yeah, I want to talk about that more. Let's give a I just have a quick little synopsis for anybody yes. who perhaps is unfamiliar within the heat of the night or if maybe you need a little refresher. Yeah. After our prominent businessman is found dead in a small Mississippi town, suspicion is instantly directed at a black man waiting for a train to travel back to Philadelphia. But Sheriff Gillespie ends up eating crow when it's revealed that this man is Philadelphia homicide detective Virgil Tibbs. Gillespie instead requests that Tibbs help him solve the murder case. Over the following days, Virgil Tibbs navigates a homicide investigation while dodging racially motivated attempts on his life, all while navigating challenges brought on by Gillespie's complicated racial tendencies. Actually, I wrote racist tendencies. I said racial, but no. He is somebody that is racist. It's the whole reason why, you know, Virgil is assumed to be the killer right away. It's like, oh, we've got our man. And then it's just like, oh, you are not the man. And then as the movie goes on, it's like he's in this, he's having these conflicting feelings where it's just like, I have to respect this person on a professional level. And Mm -hmm. I am seeing maybe for the first time, the reality of the, the difficulties that a black man in Sparta, Mississippi would have. Um, especially an outsider, because we do see some people, some black people that are in Sparta. They are definitely treated as not even second class citizens. Uh, right. And uh, uh, and he's kind of having these moments where he, the influence of the townspeople around him kind of sometimes bring him back to being really rude to to Virgil. And then in the moments where he recognizes Virgil's importance and validity as a human, maybe uh, that we see him kind of step up, but then it's kind of like a, you know, he takes one step forward and then two steps back consistently throughout the movie. Right. And I get the idea that I feel like a lot of it comes from him being like a younger Gillespie would be much more racist. He's it's kind of like he's too tired and he's just like, "Ah, you know what? What? Like, it's too hot. My air conditioner doesn't work. I'm sweaty. Everything is sweaty. I don't have the energy to put up with. I don't have the energy to like for hate anymore. And it's like, fine, you are going to solve this murder for me. Great. Like whatever he still he doesn't he doesn't drop the things like calling him black boy like yeah right like right pretty much right up to the end but just boy in general yeah 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 oh yeah well that yeah that's a big one that's a big one here but 
he's also what's what's cool about Gillespie is that he's also someone who's kind of like he's he doesn't like to answer to anybody. Yeah, true. Yet he still kind of gets this gets the feeling that like the these wealthy, you know, privileged people like in, in the movie, it's Endicott who, yeah. uh, you know, like who feel like they own everything and like they're above the law. He doesn't right. like nobody's above the law, according yeah. and, to and, him. And for those who either haven't seen the movie recently or maybe don't know it, Endicott is the owner of a, uh, a cotton plantation. And, yeah. um, Oh, uh, I, yes. I would say employs, uh, uh, black folks to do the work, but I wouldn't say that they are perhaps treated as fairly as uh, one would one would I, perhaps hope. It's I would almost say like the Civil War never ended in Sparta. I would say, yeah, all that's changed is they get paychecks and uh, go home off of Endicott property. Yeah, that, that's home. probably all that's changed there. Right. And and also the the Endicott plantation was filmed that was the one part that was filmed in Mississippi and allegedly the conditions were very uh uncomfortable, shall we say, well, uh for the crew. Yeah, I mean, it's no secret really that the uh the a lot of the southern there there's a lot of that quote unquote southern pride and a lot of stubbornness in kind of like letting go of that quote unquote heritage yeah i mean they uh the war of northern aggression didn't turn out the way they were hoping and so uh now they're now they're nope. just putting up with the results yep yep so and that's a multi-generational reckoning there. Yeah. But of course, this I'm sure was the first time on Endicott property that a black hand ever slapped a white face. First time it happened and, on film. Yeah. Yeah. Um so uh, anyway, I want so now we know what we're dealing with here. And <laughs> and okay. So we and we kind of have this like this relationship, this also like a but little buddy cop relationship going on little early days of buddy cop dynamic here. With uh, yeah, and I do it. It feels like a movie like this, even though you can in hindsight look at it and you're you're like, oh, well, oh, this is not progressive it absolutely was in 1967 and absolutely yeah it's it's kind of like when you look at when like looking at the book to kill a mockingbird and like yes that would be very problematic if somebody wrote that book and tried to publish it today especially if that person was white but at the time that to kill a mockingbird was published who else was going to get that story published and how else was that story going to get published without a quote unquote white? I'm doing that a lot on this episode. Sorry. Without that white savior character to, and this is kind of like, it's, it's, 
it's not necessarily right. It's not like one novel or one film or even a, a decade's worth of them are going to smash down the walls of of bigotry and and build that bridge. You have to chip away at that wall. And mm-hmm. this was how you chip at that wall. You had to have stories that were going to be that that your general public and white people were going to pay attention to so that they would just see it. And also like how impressive that it was, a you know, a, in a world run, the publishing world run by white men, a white woman gets this story published to kill a mockingbird yeah. that is. And then you have a, you at least get that message out there and people pay attention to it because, Oh, it's Gregory Peck. So why, so they pay attention to it and they start that you could start to develop that, that empathy. Just a real quick note on Gregory Peck in To Kill a Mockingbird. Cause I watched it recently when we were doing our uh, Anatomy of a Murder episode. I was just watching a lot of, of that time, courtroom movies. And, uh, man, he sounds so much like Robocop. <laughs> he does. <laughs> He sounds like this. He does. Yeah. <laughs> he does. He does. Yeah. Wow. I never. Well, all right. Uh, uh, that's just that an movie. observation. Like, so uh, I, I can watch but, that but, movie again. It's just never going to be the same. It, yeah. No. And it shouldn't be. So uh, Bob, something, that I, alive, something that I really appreciate. Me. What I really appreciate about In the Heat of the Night is that I feel like a lot of movies at that time would be taking a like two police officers of different races uh and what a lot of them would do is even if the white one starts off saying racist things by the end they would be you know you know buddy buddy and hugging arms around each other that kind of a thing or whatever and what this movie does is because you have Gillespie kind of constantly going back and forth in the way that he's treating Tibbs is it is a uh, I don't know about realistic because who's to say what exactly would be realistic but I felt like it was a more honest representation of yeah. uh you know somebody who's in a transitional like you know being swayed by the the heritage and the feelings of the you know the other residents of the town and then the reality of like his intellect kind of coming in and being like no i this guy is obviously really freaking smart <laughs> and it's like the only hope i have of like solving this case because if it was only up to him i mean forgetting about him arresting tibbs but like he would have thought that he had the guy at the beginning, well, the one guy who uh, it he's won, got two, he just took uh, the right. wallet. Yeah, no, no, no. Gillespie uh, uh, like arrests th- three guys that are clearly yeah. innocent. Yeah, yeah. And so, what I so, also really love oh, about yeah. this movie, just real quick, Dan, is no, yeah. uh, speak t- talking about Endicott. I uh, when Virgil Tibbs acknowledges that he was kind of blinded by his desire to put the blame on Endicott for the murder. Yeah. 
And then when he yes. realizes just like, no, this guy just sucks really bad and I hate him, but it doesn't mean right. he's guilty of this murder. Like, right. uh, you know, the way that he acknowledges that I thought was really wonderful and not every movie would do that. They would make and the villain Endicott. But and that's the the realism, though, is that there are people out there who their greatest crime is that they're pieces of shit. Yeah, they're terrible. They are well, terrible I mean, people. But that's <laughs> not against the crime. Law. It's probably and God's biggest crime is like he is a piece of shit. And then, well, because of yeah, that, I, dot, dot, dot. Right, right, right. Uh, so, right. So, but the scene, I love how that scene plays out, though, in the in the little greenhouse and oh, how friendly it scene. starts. I love how friendly it starts that even if you I mean, John, you hadn't seen it before. Did you have a? did you just know it was the calm before the storm? Not necessarily. Uh, it see, I think that just because there was so much movie left at that point, I got the impression that I. OK, this is happening, but it it's not going to be just wrapped up this nicely that, you know, okay, he goes into the car, he finds the, you know, the the thing from the cotton plant or whatever, and he goes to the cotton place, and then, you know, it's like, it's too, you know, connecting the dots. And this movie mm -hmm. doesn't seem like it's a connect the dots kind of movie. Oh, no, I just meant, like, did you know that, like, something, did you know that it was going to get intense between Endicott and I Tibbs? did not, no. No, okay. Yeah. You were just like, oh, this is, oh, they're talking about flowers. They have common interests. It's nice. It's a meat cute. Well, it was when, so uh, when they're talking about the orchids and then uh, they start talking about the one specific orchid and Endicott says, you know, uh, that's so fitting that you're drawn to this one because this one reminds me of the, yep. you know, the black man and all this kind of stuff. And I, yep. and I'm just like, Hmm, I can't tell exactly why, but I really don't like this dude. And yes, uh, you see the 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 people who are picking the cotton and everything, but it's like, but there's got to be more. Oh, here we are. <laughs> you know, it's like he gives well, us those moments to realize, oh, yeah, that's why I don't like you. Right. And I think especially to a modern audience, maybe even I, I can't speak to what it was like to see it at, in 1967, but from a modern perspective, instantly you're when you go onto the Endicott plantation and you're like, oh, yeah, no, this guy definitely like his his like grandpappy owned slaves. And totally. And he is not ashamed of it. And they've got the little the little thing in front. They've got the little jockey in front, the little black yep. jockey yeah, yeah, yeah. up in front. So, like, no, you're set up like uh, as the audience, you want it to be Endicott, I think. Yeah. Like, you're like, oh, yeah, no. Because also, of course, right. Like, he, who else, uh, ha, you know, who else has been, you know, the enemy of this this business coming in, this factory coming into town, yeah. new industry. So I like that it kind of suckers us all in and reminds us that, like, you know what? You can't arrest, you can't charge someone with murder just because they're a jackass. No, I, I think that the uh, the movie does a really good job at, like, 
keeping us questioning who's good and who isn't good. I mean, when the movie starts, we see the Warren Oates character, uh, Officer Wood. And, you know, he's driving through town. Well, first we see him at that diner. Mm-hmm. And uh, with with Ralph, who's, I mean, Anthony James as Ralph is so good. Like this wiry, wow. sweaty creep. So, who, so creepy. Yeah, who clearly hates cops and yep. uh, is just like, oh, this officer Wood is somebody I get to just mess with nonstop. And, uh, oh, God, all the flies going around. It's disgusting. I was so just thinking of, about that. I yeah. was like, oh, this guy's gross. You, you're right. You don't, you don't like him from the start, but... You don't like him from the start, but you you don't suspect that he's anything more than just the like gross dude right. who serves, you know, pie and stuff. And so right. we see we see Warren Oates and you know, then he's kind of going through town, and then we see him stopping and looking yep. through the window at uh Purdy. What was what was uh her first name? Dolores. Dolores. And, you, you know, we see her kind of Wearing no clothes, taking a little swig of soda. Boobies. Yeah. Very, very craftily uh, blocked by like, you know, pieces of furniture, windows and stuff like that. Uh, Yeah. So you see him and he's peeking in on this girl and you and you know, okay, this is a sleazy cop. And then, of course, he comes upon this dead body that he sees is Colbert and it's you know the the movie can set on its course from there and mm-hmm. uh, i uh i thought that it was really brilliant because it already establishes the vibe of the cops in this town and without really him even really doing anything he doesn't nope. even really, like say anything but you just know like this is an unsavory character and he's not even the least savory character. He's just kind of like <laughs> mid-road unsavory. Oh uh, yeah, no, he's, he's just like baseline unsavory. Gross. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And you know, you know and then if, hmm? sorry, you know who it hit me. You know, you know who I feel like Ralph is perhaps like the father or grandfather of Stanley Spadowski. It's like. <laughs> Wow. The same okay. the same frame, the same just like imagine gawkiness. Like, right, now, just everybody who of, isn't familiar with uh, UHF, this is uh, Michael Richards' character in UHF. Yeah, and everyone who isn't familiar with UHF get with the program. Yeah. It's on U62. Check it out. All right. Back to in the heat of the night. Yeah, I well, I mean, I will say it's kind of like young Michael Richards mixed with like Anthony Perkins. Oh yeah, definitely got that that yeah. Anthony Perkins. Yeah, he's got the creepy creepiness quality. exactly. Yeah. Uh, so right, we we see Sam Wood, we know unsavory, and then we meet the rest of the cops, and it's just like uh, just a bunch of bumbling idiots. I, uh, you know, Gillespie is just like, okay. I've got I've got the guy. We're good. And it's it, it this is a question that I ask of a lot of you know police driven shows or movies where it always gives me the question of are you trying to find somebody for this or are you trying to find the person who did this? Like mm-hmm. I it seems in a, in a lot of TV shows and movies it's like 
as soon as they find somebody who's a suspect that they like, and trust me, I watch a lot of Murder, She Wrote. We know this. <laughs> yes. So the cops are frequently just like, are, so many of the cops are frequently just like, but look, he matches all the criteria. And da, 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 da. And then, of course, like Jessica Fletcher is just like, yeah, but there's one thing that's just sticking to my craw. And it's like something, there's one thing that like doesn't really check out. And then of course she's right. But it's like, in a lot of these movies, there's these, this, these cops that are just like, this is the guy. Like, look at this. He stole the wallet. He's running from us. Certainly he he's the guy. He, yeah, he confessed, whatever. It's like, isn't that going to be good enough? And then it's just like, right, but this doesn't add up. And it's like, he's left-handed. And this couldn't I, have been <laughs> done by somebody who's left-handed. Oh my god, that's so funny. That was exactly what I was thinking. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's that's exactly exactly. the type of thing that would stick in that Fletcher craw. And that has happened on at least one episode of Murder She Wrote, where somebody uh, their dominant hand isn't the dominant hand. On the uh, on the most recent season of True Detective, The Night Country, there's a whole situation where somebody uh, has been like you know on record where they committed suicide. But they were left-handed, and it doesn't check out with the gunshot and everything. So it's something that's still being used in pop culture today, because probably it comes up a lot. Yep. So Never anyway. gets old. But these are definitely, I mean, look, these cops don't even want to fix the little, like, door. They don't want to work. Yeah. They want to no. They want to drive around, eat pie, look at boobies, uh, and that's about it. Well, and I'm sure that there's not a lot of police work that goes on in that town. There's probably a lot no. that should go on in that town, but it's not a, a very active, at least from their, from what they care about, crime town. I mean, when no. there's a murder of a prominent figure in the town, then yeah, of course they're going to have to, you know, get to work. Well, and of course he's an he's an outsider, so. <sighs> and boy, Nothing oh boy. When uh, when Sidney Poitier is uh, is the the character of the of the outsider, you better look out. You better not say the wrong thing to that guy because you know that he's always going to be the virtuous one. Oh right. Well, yeah. No, I was I was referring to actually that Colbert is an outsider, someone. Oh who's, oh yeah yeah yeah. Right, a northern business. So it's kind of like that other sense of just like uh like uh outsiders uh they just cause trouble for us here in in sparta which is a very spartan attitude to take i would say yeah and and we have uh lee grant as the the victim's wife who i thought was really fantastic uh Mm -hmm. i mean talk about prolific actors she you know she was going all the way up until 2005 acting Um, i always think of her most with defending your life oh she's so good at defending your life Right. That's kind of, I think that's like the, that's what I know her from. I know she's done clearly so much more. But if somebody was... is in defending your life, that is the movie that I know them from. And it is the movie that I use as kind of like the benchmark for, you know, how great they are. I would say with the exception of Meryl Streep, that is correct. Even with Meryl Streep, it, Meryl it does... Streep in that movie is so perfect. 
Oh, it plays. Don't don't get me wrong. It is not in in the you know pie chart of what composes Meryl Streep's greatness, and and but also what we forgive her for. There, a large chunk of it belongs to defending your life. But you know, also Kramer versus Kramer, and, and but what I mean is like and, yeah. If you had to uh, put into an AI generator, generate the most likable character. It's Meryl Streep in defending your life. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yes. I, no. And so, and and Dan also, you know, we're we're doing this series. We're going through each of the fifty United States plus Puerto Rico and Washington D.C. And I think we should add one more onto that: Judgment City. Judgments, yeah, but Judgment City, like that's the thing. Judgment City knows no borders. Everyone is there. It's not a, yeah. I I feel like Judgment City has got a. I think that's we need to do our own series there on the ethereal locations of. Uh, oh yeah, the the space between like, life and death. <laughs> well, like like yeah, we do Judgment right. Do Judgment City. Do the fountain. Uh, we could. Do, I don't know. I'm like, maybe we don't do that. What What else? Uh, yeah, I'm. There's plenty, plenty of of those type of movies, of course. But yeah, it's Judgment City. <laughs> so anyway, back to Mississippi, though. I I, I really types felt of like judgment in this city. Yeah, uh, and I, and I've talked about this before. And when I'm watching movies like this, where it's like, oh, most of the cast or most of the characters are going to be extremely unlikable and are doing things that are so against what is right. I do have to, while I'm watching it, remember like these are actors who are playing these roles because this is a movie that is, you know, probably to these actors more than just a paycheck. You know, a lot of these characters who are played, you know, the the those kids in the car who are like, you know, running them off the road and have the chain and all that kind of stuff trying to beat them up. It's like those people in, like in reality in those actual brains are thinking like, oh, my God, I would never do this. Oh, my God, this is so awful. And right. they have to access that part of themselves to be able to play the role, but like are most likely not those characters. <laughs> You have to hope and assume that, you know, before places are called and after after cut is called that they're they're having donuts and coffee with Sidney Poitier. And exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And laughing. And there are exceptions to the rule. I'm sure that, you know, there's been plenty of James Woods characters that I, you know, could easily fit into something like this or uh, John Voight or something like that. But um, yeah, I was going to say James Woods characters or just James Woods. James Woods. Yeah. 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 I I think it's the only movies I can watch him in are movies where he plays characters that are as despicable as he is. Not even acting. Fortunately, there's a few and I don't watch Casino that often. So, yeah. But yeah, I don't know, Dan. Uh, so we we mentioned briefly the sequel and the sequels sequel. Uh, they call me Mister Tibbs and the organization. So 
something that kind of tickled me about this movie is how this the most famous line from this movie and also from like most movies is they call me Mr. Tibbs to call the sequel. They call me Mr. Tibbs is like calling a sequel like Luke, I am your father or (laughs) or I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse like. That's so bold to call your sequel the famous line from your movie. Are, are there any other examples of that? <laughs> I can't think of any. Uh, I don't know. I mean, in uh, in Breakin', does somebody say Electric Boogaloo? Like, I don't know. But I mean, it's not even, even then. Called... It's still Breakin' to Electric Boogaloo. I know. It's, it's not called. This isn't called In the Heat of the Night. They call me Mr. Colin. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Like, you can't handle the truth. The sequel to a few yeah, good men. Yeah, I, I know, right? Not it's even almost, including the character that says that line. Why not? I know. It's really fascinating. And I kind of love that about this, is that they were just like, screw it. Let's just call it, they call me Mr. Tibbs, with an exclamation mark. Oh, hell yeah. You know, what I... So, first of all, before we move on, I also want to just kind of point out something that I love about watching films from the late 60s and the 70s is is how well they're shot and oh yeah watching them seeing them in kind of high definition and see the way that light is used the way that the 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 screen is used in this the balance the score quincy jones hello yeah Yeah. i I do love Um, the shot when uh when virgil is in the jail cell and it has the shadow of like the bars on the window yep. coming through. Yep. Beautiful mm-hmm. shot. Beautiful shot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, lo- a lovely, lovely looking movie. And w- it's it's one of those movies that, again, you look at the sequels. I mean, I haven't seen them, but just judging by, I don't know, the fact that the sequel is the most famous line from the original with an exclamation mark. Yeah, it's kind of like I I love those. There's those string of movies from this era that are like legitimate classics that will hold up, that stand the test of time, that just have like a run of just like cheap and lousy sequels. Because yeah. you, you have this, you have Jaws, you have um oh damn it, what's there was another one I was thinking of where. It's like the the original is just a classic, and then the sequels just dev- Rocky. Not that the sequels. I don't want to say that th- those sequels devolve. Those sequels are a roller coaster ride. Yeah. Well, of course. Yeah. Yes. I, I was but, just listening to uh, an episode of the podcast Blank Check. They're talking about uh, the movie Predator, and just about how the sequels to that are just uh, until like Prey. They uh, it's just going further and further down. Brief but then, comment. Uh, no, no, I want to say brief, brief. So brief. Uh, what I feel is uh, about the Predator sequels is that at the time Predator Two came out, for some reason, people felt it was disappointing. When you look at it after all of the other Predator sequels, mm. Predator Two is fucking awesome and <laughs> totally stands up. It is not quite. The original Predator, but man, Predator 2, which I enjoyed at the time, but I was like 12. So it, it yeah. was set it's up for 12 me. It's for 12-year-olds. Like, 
Yeah. Yeah. So, but I, I've watched it again not too long ago and was still uh, really, really into it. But yeah. So anyway, you have these like the originals are classics, but then the sequels are just kind of watered down. I believe that the sequels did pretty well. Um, I don't know exactly what the reception was critically. But not not at the level of In the Heat of the Night. Let me, uh, let's look up I on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. I feel like I'm just curious. Just, yeah, no, no, no. I'm glad you're, you're looking... I'm glad you're looking that up. Um, so, well, they call me Mr. Tibbs. Was it's a fifty percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and the organization, which is a great name for a movie, uh, and that's twenty five percent. Yikes! Oof. And, yeah, and so, I'm checking in the heat of the night just to see uh, for for context. Oh, geez, it's. Uh, it's buried because of all of the other in the heat of the nights. Wow. Oh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid. There's another one classic. And then the prequel is just right. Yeah. In the heat of the night, 96% on rotten tomatoes. That's pretty dang good. Yeah. Right. You, you can't argue with that. Yeah. But that's a big drop to go from 96 to 50 and then to 25. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Now tell me what does, it, what does the series in the heat of the night have because if there is a true sequel to in the heat of the night i would say it's the series in the heat of the night Let's in which see. in the heat of the night what what year did that debut 1988 okay in the heat of the night 1988 tv show oh here we go tv shows okay so that one and I well, I mean, Rotten Tomatoes doesn't really do TV, no, the way that it does movies. So I don't know if it actually has like a tomato score. Well, in the no, heat of the no night, score for this one, I think that this was just like before they were recording TV reviews. Oh yeah, 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 definitely. So it is. It takes place at some point after. The, the movie in the heat of the night, though, from the dialogue, it, it it's implied that it's much sooner. However, there are some discrepancies. So first of all, uh, you have you have uh, Howard Rollins taking over the role of Virgil Tibbs and you have Carol O'Connor taking over the role of Chief Gillespie and mm -hmm. Tibbs comes back to town for his mother's funeral and we okay. remember he was visiting his mother in the original although in the although in the in the film i don't remember it being spe specified that his mother lived in sparta now in the I series i was under the impression that he was just passing through like, i was under that impression connection. as well the series however establishes that tibbs's mother was in fact like the town's caterer and she just catered every event and everybody knew. So then why didn't he stay with her while he was there? Because he was just passing through yeah. in the movie. So they reference. Oh, and by the way, also, he's married. 
which in in the movie they call her Mrs. Tibbs. Is that <laughs> right? That's what they do. Yes, she's played by Anne Marie Johnson. So okay. Mrs. Tibbs, I think Althea is her name in it. So right, she's right, she's northern, and he is he while he's in town receives a well first of all there's there's a murder and okay. he's uh uh was Gillespie kind of brings him in on it and he kind of and then he's the mayor offers him a position as chief of detectives there's no detectives in uh there but like basically i think the mayor wants to run for senate and he okay. needs a record on he needs a civil rights record so he wants to appoint a like a black detective chief of detectives got it okay so and there, and there's they don't it's not shy about racial conflict in this like all the they he uh, he gets called boy and all that. Uh, there's an innocent, an innocent kid gets arrested for the crime who of course is black. And uh, he gets like, he gets lynched while he's in, in the County, in the jail. Yikes. It like, it goes, it goes pretty hard. So the series uh, also in, in the pilot episode, the pilot episode features uh murder committed by the son spoiler alert committed by the son of again the cotton uh big, big shot town big shot in the movie okay. his name is like Lafitte or Lapite and he, he he's played by speaking of UHF the late great Kevin McCarthy oh nice who is right, uh, like totally racist, uh, and yeah. it's it, it turns out like it turns out his son did it because his son has been running like an underground pornography operation, and he's been like basically like basic like running a like Lafitte Studios in in a secret room in his house, but also like he was taking secret videos with his girlfriend and like his, his friend and his friend's girlfriend. And he was, it's funny because when the, when the father finds out and he's like so angry and Kevin McCarthy's like ready to rip his son's head off. And he's like, you like our family name. Do you know what you've done to our family name? And the son is like, I know what I would have done to our family name. I would have put it in stores nationwide. If you hadn't stopped, Whoa. like basically <laughs> Like I was going to be the the greatest pornographer ever. It it was such an interesting uh interesting twist, but um yeah. So it it so anyway, uh, Tibbs moves to Sparta and teams up with Gillespie, and there's and it's a procedural. So it's every week there's something different. And the show originally, I believe, ran on NBC, and okay. then ran on on CBS. And uh, and famously, Gillespie is played by Carol O'Connor, uh, who makes complete sense. I mean, he looks like Rod Steiger, and also he is known to play a uh, a grumpy bigot. Racist. <laughs> yeah, grumpy bigot, cantankerous racist. Yeah, take your pick. Just you know, uh, this time he's doing it in the Deep South instead of Queens. Yeah, 
Right. Yeah, uh, uh, I, I mean, watching Rod Steiger, it was kind of like, it's hard to unsee uh, Carol O'Connor in his face in some in some moments where it's just like, man, when they were casting this show, were they just like, and obviously it'll be Carol O'Connor, right? Well, I think Carol O'Connor was the one, I think he produced it. I think it, like, right, I but think I mean, Carol it doesn't O'Connor necessarily mean that. Well, it doesn't mean that he was the one that you know initiated the like. He didn't go to be like, I want to be, I want to be uh, Chief Gillespie in uh, I, in, in the Heat of the Night series. I mean, yeah, who who knows? But let's see. Yeah, it's a sequel. Oh yeah, right. Oh, so it's on the Wikipedia page for the show. It says that the events of the movie are said to have occurred a few years ago. Uh it, the the series is definitely set in the late eighties when when it was made. So yeah, it, there's there's a little uh there's a little discrepancy. There's a little discrepancy there. I suppose it leaves time for uh uh for Tibbs to to get married. I I'm oh, picturing by it, the by the way, Dan. I'm picturing uh, you saying that it definitely takes place in 1988. I'm expecting it to be like them, you know, pulling up in the cop car and they're playing like "Simply Irresistible" by Robert Palmer. <laughs> and it's like <laughs> you know, just like obvious markers of the time. It this it definitely takes place in. You hear? Don't worry. Be happy. I yep that is that is where where I was <laughs> going next. What's next? Georgia satellites. Keep your hands to yourself. Hey Tib, don't worry. Be happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, no, I was yeah. actually I was looking to see because because Murder She Wrote was on CBS, right? I believe so. Yeah. And when when did it run? It started in eighty four. So I'm sure that there was a desire for there to be. You know, and I mean, there were so many of those at that time uh, of varying different levels, you know, of course, like Magnum P.I. And, and shows like that, where it's like, you know, the crime of the week, essentially. I mean, all you need to do is write in a some a, a Fletcher relative that lives in Sparta. <sighs> she has a lot of relatives on that show. Like an, her niece is having a baby and she's in town. And uh, well, what do you know? There's a murder. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be impossible to imagine a scenario in which she does have, like, a black relative who's, like, a cousin of Virgil Tibbs or something like that. Oh, I mean, yeah, it. I don't even think you need to stretch. I, network series did not stretch that far. It was just like, okay, wow, like, how are we going to get Urkel onto Full House? I don't know. Like, I don't know. He just knocks on the door. Uh, yeah, but I'm I'm pretty sure I it think was that he was like, like visiting a cousin or something. Of course, he was visiting a cousin. Yeah. They're yeah. always vis- you're oh that's what happens. You're visiting a cousin in another city, and oh, they live next door to the Tanners. Yeah, no, that's how it, that's how it happens. Of course. All right, so we've got the a, a, a best picture winner, two apparently subpar sequels. A, a TV series. Uh, oh, by the way, you've got all the novels that that this was based oh, on. Absolutely, yeah. Right. So, where to from here? 
Uh, I while I was watching it, I initially was thinking about um a a play, but as it went on, I started to think like, oh no, there's just too many different like locations and these kind of things that just wouldn't work out so well for that, and. I was thinking about like the title of it in the heat of the night. And I was kind of hoping that the, the entirety of the movie would like take place over the course of like one night, you know, like there's something about it where it was just like, Oh, there's a body Mm. discovered at night and they bring this guy in who's there all in the same, you know, one hour time frame or whatever. And I was thinking like, Oh, it'd be really cool to do a version of this where like, you know, he is on the 10 a.m. train. It's it's right. a before sunrise situation. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or the paper. And, uh, the paper. The paper. Yeah. But it's like we've got to, you know, we only have this, you know, really high profile homicide detective in town until his train takes him to Philadelphia. His, uh, you know, commanding officer or whatever has said that, you know, we can use him if we want to during the time that he's there, but he's there for only a limited time. And uh, so, yeah, I was thinking like a remake, but it is something where, and I don't think that it needs to be set in 1967 because there is still racism, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, as we all, as we all are aware, a cab, all cops are bastards. And uh, I, the there are certain pockets of this country where police brutality against uh you know black people is uh rampant and uh, i feel like it sh- it there should be something that takes place now that does involve a black homicide detective in a part of the world that is you know less likely to be welcoming to him and uh you know, and maybe for them also, it is like a, you know, we need to get through this as quickly as possible because we don't want him around. And, uh, you know, we don't want our citizens to see that we're working with him because they won't trust us. And so, yeah, I think I think a modern day remake that just takes place over the course of a night. Uh, it doesn't need to be Virgil Tibbs. I feel like that name, because of the famous quote, kind of exists with Sidney Poitier and to recreate that with like Michael B. Jordan, it wouldn't feel authentic. And obviously, I'm saying Michael B. Jordan should play the the role because he's fantastic. Um, the, I mean, we have so many fan, so many great you know black actors who would be uh, awesome. This you know, I talk about Donald Glover all the time. I feel like yeah, he would also be great. Uh, Lakeith Stanfield, uh, maybe not Lakeith Stanfield for this one, but uh, Daniel Kaluuya would of course would be great. But I'm just thinking about like the that age range where it's like you're not like super seasoned, but you're still very right. you know you're you've been in it long enough where you can be a really good detective. Right, right, right. So not even not even a uh, I'm gonna uh, hopefully not butcher the name, but a Chiwetel Ejiofor. Too old. Too old. Right. Too old. Because I was gonna yeah. say Denzel definitely too old. Too old. Uh, but uh, but, but John yeah, David like, Washington would be great. John David Washington would would be great. Yeah, definitely would uh, certainly call back to his Black Klansman. No, uh, but I think that Michael B. Jordan would be, you know, where I, w- where I would go with that. 
Um, right. And yeah, I, yeah, Michael yeah. B. Jordan would be, he's a great actor. So I think he'd be great. And like I said, there, there are, I'm sure a lot of great black actors out there that were not, are not just directly at the top of our heads. Yeah. Who, uh, yeah, I'll tell you who's not going to get cast in that Jonathan Majors. Uh, but yeah, yeah, never again. So, okay. So a remake would, and would you, and but not that I think that you need to, because as you said, like it is sadly still relevant, but any consideration to a remake that explores like a, like another, I don't know, for a moment when you were talking about it and like being contemporary and it was like, I wonder like what, what about being like a trans cop? today like what's that like i don't know any story i have not read any stories of or by trans cops and i mean not that the thing i guess the thing is really uh, uh there would be no need for anybody to know or really like you just introduce yourself as who you are and you'd be the like only- hi i'm detective I feel like for for me, the only trans representation I've seen on television in the police is David Duchovny in Twin Peaks. And uh, it's done magnificently there. And a very early uh, nod of approval for the trans community by David Lynch, who, uh, you know, kind of handles it flawlessly. However, I feel like for this specifically, I mm-hmm. uh, I think that the that racial tension is the smarter move. I feel like uh and we it just might be that we're not ready yet to uh you know really get into uh, you know, a, a trans man or woman or non-binary individual on the police force. Well, in, and in also, this kind of context, right, right, and also, I feel I, I as I was kind of talking through it, kind of realized why that doesn't work as well, at least in terms of of somebody who's who's trans, who's maybe not going like they're not going to introduce themselves as yes hi i'm the new trans detective and if they don't like you know there's a good chance you would be working with a trans cop and not necessarily know know because it would make absolutely no difference and not matter in the least and not be necessary to know whereas right you can't hide or not you know that's right you can't like racism it's is it's on the surface. I, I think that another big difference that we haven't mentioned yet is that uh, there is a deep history in specifically police violence against black individuals. Um, yeah. You know, the police, a historically white organization. And uh, when it comes to trans people, it's uh, more common for the aggression to be coming from regular everyday citizens um you know it's just that there isn't that history that's the same you know that's on the same level and and honestly police violence against trans people 
is uh, I don't have the data in front of me, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say higher f- among people of color. So, oh, a hundred percent. No, I mean, yeah, a hundred percent. That's that's an actual number, but yes, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's right. It uh, it makes a lot of sense. Sorry, I was just you'd said something, and I wish I had written it down because I wanted. Oh, to did I say something really it. smart? Totally. Do you totally want me to say everything it. that I said over again? Yeah, if you could go back and just do okay. everything. Yeah, hold on, let me get my pad this time. So what I was saying, <laughs> to yeah. repeat myself, um, is that uh, there is a much deeper history of yes. violence against black individuals by the police. And that history oh, that was it. Know, that goes was back it. to the that beginning of the police. Yes, go on. That was it. Yes, the begin. Oh, sorry. The the origin of the police as being yeah. the like slave patrol, the runaway yes. slave patrol. Exactly. That being how, and that the original, uh, like originally, the settlers didn't want police because yeah. that was right. Yeah, it's too violent. Crazy? But anyway, that's where you were going. That's where I was going. So tell me, uh, what what's your vision for a uh, perhaps a fourth in the Tib series? I don't know. What are you thinking? I'm not, I'm actually not thinking of a fictional re- exploration of this. I think a dare I say either well perhaps fictional but as I was thinking fictional I was saying well why fictional because there are so many true stories and maybe it's a bit overdone at this point but and there's probably one out there and I know that there are several podcasts out there about southern about like law, law enforcement in the South. I would be interested to hear some more stories about just about like law enforcement during the civil rights era in the South, hearing from uh, hearing the stories of black law enforcement officials and officers having to work with cops who they knew were racist, having to go in and report to a, a chief who's got a Confederate flag. who's got yeah. multiple Confederate flags in their office. You yeah, know, you know, so, just, so, just doing a quick Google. I wasn't, I, I just quickly searched for uh, the very first uh, interracial police partnership and it came up with nothing. And I thought that'd be a really interesting story to tell the first time that, uh, uh, a black police officer got partnered up with a white police officer. Right, right. And I mean, to be honest with you, I, I think it would be something that could, you know, to go Riggs back and to your... Well, uh, that's a whole other, that's a whole <laughs> other problem. But going back to your comment, you know, your ACAB, like a little... I'm not saying like imagery have, but I'm just saying like maybe some true stories coming out of police departments, not necessarily positive, not necessarily negative, just like, hey, this is like, this is how it was. Hey, I was I was the first black cop on this police force in Alabama. And this is my story. We're also running out of time to get a lot of those stories told. So, yeah. I, you know, I was kind of thinking of it. I was like, well, would it be a true crime podcast about murders in Southern towns that may or may not be racially motivated? But no, I actually think hearing the stories of like the integration of law enforcement in the South yeah. is a much more interesting 
story, and maybe you call it in the heat of the night. Maybe you don't. I don't know. But yeah, that, I, that, that, that's where yeah. my mind is. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. I think that's a pretty cool idea. Uh, th- those stories need to be told. And if they are being told, I'd love to know about it so I could listen to them or or check out some stuff about them. If you know of any of that, please email us, uh, ruinedchildhoodspod at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, ruinedchildhoodspod.com. Um, in this episode's description, there'll be links to those plus our link tree that has our, uh, social media stuff. They've got, we've got our, uh, the Walt that I've got going on my documentary yes. club. Yes. Uh, please sign up. We have our next month coming soon. I'm gearing up for Check that. Check it out. Yeah. Check it out. And, Any, uh, 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 John, can I, can I ask, can you feel free to say no, but as I'm asking now as a subscriber, any hints as to what the March selection will be? Well, I have made a selection, but as part of the deal with premium subscribers who pay $5 a month, uh, they get input on what the next, on what the coming film is going to be. So I have sent that uh, to those folks. And so I'm waiting to hear any feedback uh, at a certain point. I just take silence as approval. And so I uh, I will be able to announce that soon. Well, let me see. When does this podcast episode come out? We are, uh, let's see, we're in Mississippi. I mean, so this will be coming out at the end of the month, uh, probably the 28th. So I, that information will be coming out very soon. But I will just say that the one that I'm uh, leaning towards uh is relevant in connection with a major oscar contender and okay. uh has uh, a it, it uh there are certain celebrities that are included that are uh, are pretty damn well known so uh that's that's all i'm going to say for right now because i don't know if things are going to change Okay. All right. In- interesting. Sorry Love to be it. dodgy about it, but uh, no, no, but, no. It, it, intrigue is good. Intrigue is good. But speaking about March, uh, on March sixth, we'll be releasing our Missouri episode of the podcast. Dan, do you want to tell everybody what we're going to be covering for Missouri? Yes, we will not be covering a movie about racial problems with the police, although Missouri certainly has known its share of those. No, we will be looking at 2010's Winter's Bone, directed by Deborah Granick, starring yeah. Jennifer Lawrence with for her first Oscar nomination, John Hawks, Garrett Dillahunt, and it'll be my first time watching it, John. Same and, here. And yours? Same here. Yeah. And uh, John Hawks, who's uh, in the aforementioned latest season of True Detective. Great as always. I'm sure he looks exactly the same in 2010's Winter's Bone. That man just kind of stuck yep. in age, a look for an age, and has just stayed that way for quite a while. Gar- guaranteed. Uh, he Guaranteed. Uh, he pulls it off perfectly in uh, Eastbound and Down. I, John Hawks he- is fantastic. He has a Defoeish ability to defy aging and time. Yeah, he's like, I'm going to be 58 from uh, uh, the year I'm 25 on until I'm probably 88. <laughs> yeah, no, that was Gene Hackman. 
There we go. Yeah. Still is, in fact. I mean, I haven't checked Twitter, yeah. but well, knock on wood. Yeah. Yeah. Gene so, Hackman, our uh, thoughts are with you. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, Dan, as you are trying to safely return to Philadelphia, I wish you a good journey. Good journey. <laughs> <laughs>